We're in a series right now called Choose Life, and we're in just the second week. So turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. If you missed last week, I encourage you to catch up online because uh, I gave a lot of preliminary statements about this series. Uh, It is one of those types of series that sort of turns the spotlight on us, and I know Sometimes we don't like that. Sometimes people don't like that. They, we want to talk about everyone else's problems and the world's problems and the nation's problems and this generation's problems and everyone else, and our spouse's problems and our kids' problems, but we don't want to talk about our problems, right? And this series is going to help us and to do the opposite of that and basically, just for a little bit, okay, not focus on anybody else's problems but our own. And look inward. How do you know that's good to do every now and then? Because you can't change anybody else's problems. I mean, I could become an expert at pointing out all of your flaws and, and be really good at criticizing. And if you're part of the younger generation and you, you, know, you spend a lot of time on YouTube, there are whole channels on YouTube that are just devoted to criticizing one person. Like... You know, they'll find somebody famous like uh, one of the pastors, like Joel Osteen or Stephen Furtick or something like that. And their whole YouTube channel is just devoted to analyzing every one of their sermons and picking out everything that was wrong with it and, like, critiquing it. And my thought when I see that is, go get a life. <laughs> I mean, what is, what is the matter with you? And, and by the way... How, how far have you exalted yourself to put yourself in that position to be the expert on criticizing someone else's life and sermons and all of that? Not saying I agree with every, believe me, I don't agree with every sermon I hear, but also I'm not making a YouTube channel about it. And, you know, so anyway, but, but we're good at that, and that's the generation we live in, right? I mean, you could do anything great, it doesn't matter. You could cure cancer. And if it makes it to the internet, there's going to be a hundred people in the comments that are criticizing something you did, some, the way you did it. Well, it could have been done like this. Oh, well, you left out this group. There's going to be some criticism. And we're experts. We've become experts at criticizing everything and everyone around us because it somehow validates us. And that's why people do it. If I, if I point out the one little thing that nobody else saw, that makes me special. Right, I saw something nobody else saw. I must be very intelligent. I must have expert perception that no one else saw because I saw this one little flaw. No, it may, I'm not going to call you names if that's you. But no, you have a problem. You have your expert, and the Bible talked about the Pharisees like this. He said you're experts at pointing out other people's flaws, but you never shine the light inward. So we're not going to be like that. Amen? We're not going to be like that. No, we're going to be experts at examining our own life. And, and looking, looking inward. And uh, we, I, I gave this statement last week from Pastor Craig Groeschel. I love this statement. He said, everything that is frustrating you, you've either created or allowed. And I know that's a hard statement, and I know people can find exceptions. But I still like it. I still like it because it, it's a take responsibility statement. That, and it applies to way more. It may not apply to everything, but it applies to way more than people would give credit to it. Everything that's frustrating you, you've either created or contributed to it, or your behavior has made it worse or led to it, or you've allowed it, meaning you've allowed it to continue by not removing yourself, not changing, not set, whatever. You've allowed it to continue. I understand that doesn't apply to everything, right? There, there are things in our lives that are tragedies, things that happen not by our choice, bad things that happen that 
you know, aren't in our control. But still, a large majority of the things in our lives, they come back to our choices. So let's look in Genesis chapter 4, and that's what this series is about. Genesis chapter 4, verse 3. And I started thinking like this a long time ago, and I've only continued thinking like this more and more because what I found out a long time ago is I can't change other people. No matter how mad I get about what you're doing, I have no control over it. Even in a marriage, right? Well, my spouse, and boy, you got a list, and you could just point out all their things that they're, yeah, but you can't change them. So all you can do is change you, which will improve the situation. You can change you, how you respond to what they're doing. You can, you can become more resilient. You can, come, you can become more strong. You can learn to walk in love more. You can become more wise. There's a lot of things you can do to improve the situation, but the one thing you really can't do is change them. But I don't know how many marriages and counseling and things and people I talk to, and they don't even want to. And it's like if they're in a bad marriage and you try to point out one little thing, well, you know, you might could do this. I don't want to hear about that. I, it's not me. It's them. Yeah, but you have a huge amount you can do to improve and make your situation better. If it'll make you feel better, we can sit here all day and talk about somebody who's not in the room. Um, if that'll make you feel better, but I can tell you one thing, it's not going to change them one bit. And actually, if you look biblically, what, when the Bible talks about people that find themselves in that situation, the whole, all the instruction is to uh, the, the spouse that is hurting and how to respond and how to how to deal with it. So, but this is the situation. It doesn't matter what you find yourself in. Yeah, you can point, you can blame, you can say, they need to do, yeah, I understand, but I promise you, one thing you can do to instantly improve the situation is turn the light inward and figure out how you can change. And, it, and you go, well, that's not fair. It doesn't matter if it's fair. We're not talking about what's fair. We're talking about what's going to work. And there sometimes is a difference. Sometimes it's not fair, but it's what's actually going to work. Every new, every new married couple, and I don't know why we're talking about marriage. This is not a sermon on marriage, but it always works its way in somehow. Every new married couple finds this out very, very early on. That I can have instant, there's one magical thing that I can do to find instant peace in this area. Overlook and ignore. <laughs> right? Because in the beginning, you're worried about stupid stuff. You know, ah, you left your clothes on the floor. And look, if you're still married, worried about that, look, if you've been married for more than five years, come see me. All right, we, we, we got some working to do. But in the beginning, you're worried about stupid stuff because you didn't realize how selfish you were when you got married still. So you, you were used to living a certain way. And then so little things, you know, oh, you left their fork here, left their plate there, all oh, the clothes, this, that, that, you know, stuff that you go, well, it matters. Well, it does matter, but do you, do you, wouldn't you rather have peace? So you learn early on to ignore and overlook. And you learn to pick your battles, what really matters, right? And so very early on, you learn to go, well, you know what? If it bothers me that that's out, I'll take care of it. And so that's taking responsibility. Now, if you never made that switch, your marriage is probably miserable. If you never make that switch and you're just constantly, and by the way, the person you're living with, their marriage is probably miserable. Because what happens then? Well, then it's just nagging all the time. Man, you don't do this, you never do And then the person starts to feel, well, it's just never good enough. What, what is all that? All that is, I'm so focused on what you're doing wrong, you're so focused on what I'm doing wrong, and neither of us are working on ourselves. <laughs> I'm trying to change you, you're trying to change me. Let's reverse it. I'll change me, you change you, and we'll be happier together. 
Amen? <laughs> and that's how the Bible, that's how the, Bible uh, the instructions to marriage are written, by the way. If you read in Ephesians, he's got instructions to husbands. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He's got instructions to wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. You know, those things. And neither, neither part likes, likes their instructions to them. But we like the instructions to the other person. And by the way, this, this is what I hear a lot. Well, my husband's supposed to be doing this. Look at what the word My wife is supposed to be doing this. Look at the word. Did you know it wasn't written so you would know what your wife is supposed to do? Or what your, it was written so you would know what to do. Your own self. And actually, you're supposed to do your part whether or not they're doing theirs. Go read the passage. You're supposed to do your part whether or not they're doing theirs. And by doing your part, you get God involved through obedience, and by doing your part, you bring a blessing on your, on your marriage and on the situation. That was extra. I'm not even going to charge you for that. Let's just get into Genesis 4-3 this morning. All right. <clears throat> In the course of time, what's going on here is Cain and Abel are having some problems. They're bringing an offering to the Lord. Now, it doesn't give you all this information here, but they had instructions about what kind of offerings to bring. If you go read the law, the law hadn't been given yet. But God had a very detailed process of how to bring offerings, right? It had to be on this day. It had to be, you know, it, a lamb. It had to be firstborn. had to be spotless. Or this on this certain festival, it had to be a, two turtle doves and it, with this amount of oil. and this. So it's very specific. There, and so God's offerings were never just, hey, whatever you feel like bringing. You know, what, whatever seems good to you, just drop that off, you know, at the door. It wasn't like that. God's offerings were very specific. And in a way, it was sort of a test of obedience and faithfulness. Can you follow instructions? Can you do what I've asked you to do? So they had those instructions. Even though it doesn't explain it, we're, from the context of the story, you can clearly tell that there had been some instruction about what kind of offerings to bring. So that's kind of the context. Verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Why? Because he was a farmer, and that's what was easy for him. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, again, this tells me immediately that they had instructions. Because why did he bring the firstborn? Why didn't he just find any old, any old lamb in his flock? Why did he bring the firstborn? And why did he bring the fat portions? This is specifically talked about in the law about the fat around the liver that has to be brought and offered on the offering. <clears throat> so Abel knew the type of offering he was supposed to be bringing, and Cain did too. But Cain had a little rebellious streak in him. <clears throat> and maybe his mindset, I don't know, we're not told his mindset. But maybe his mindset was, well, this is what I do. You know, I, I'm, I'm a farmer. I'm going to bring him the, fir <clears throat> the first fruits of this. Or this is what I have. I'm going to bring it. And what I, what I bring should be, give, should be good enough. By the way, that's the same way a lot of people still give today. But we're not going to get on that. <clears throat> so he says, and Abel was... Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, because it was correct, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. In other words, God's not one to look and go, well, you know, at least you tried. Or, well, at least your heart was in it. Or, well, actually, his heart wasn't in it. You know, he's not going to say that. This is what you were supposed to do. You had a choice. You had a decision. It should have been done like this. So for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Look, you can learn a massive amount about human nature from this passage. 
the instructions were clear. What they were supposed to do was clear. Even in the law, when the law was given, they're told what to do in this situation. If, if, you have, if you're a farmer and you have vegetables and things like that, you're supposed to go trade with somebody that has livestock and get what you need if you don't have it, and then bring that offering. All right, so he, they, they knew what to do. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. And what happens when he is rejected or it's not accepted? He gets angry. Who does he get angry at? What does he get angry about? I can tell you this, everybody but himself. He's angry at God. God's unfair. God's a dictator. You know, God's too hard. He gets mad at Abel. Abel, just a goody two-shoes, probably got mad at Adam and Eve, blamed his mom and daddy somehow. Wasn't many other people on earth to blame at that point. But he blamed everybody and anybody that he could except himself. Now, how many of you know this is human nature? I, and I know that you've seen this in yourself. We've all seen it in ourselves. I remember when my kids were young, one of my children had a problem with this. I won't, I won't say which one. She's going to try to protect them a little bit. But I remember one just always blamed the other person. And, we had, and man, we had, to, we had to show, it was so much work to show them that they were doing this. Every time something happens, you blame the other person. And it was so, the one, I think the one time the light bulb went off was the other, per, the other kid wasn't even in the room and one tripped or stubbed their toe and yelled out the other person's name instantly. I'm like, they weren't even in the room and you're blaming them. And then it's like the light bulb kind of went off like, oh man, this is a habit. Like it's, and it can be a habit. It can be a habit to instantly, the first, anything goes wrong doesn't matter what it is, we instantly start looking to blame other people or find somebody else to blame. It's, it's in human nature. It's the flesh nature, okay? It's the sin nature. You see it all the way back to the beginning. Cain was angry. Did he have a reason to be angry? No. Are there people in this room that are angry and don't have a reason to be angry? Yes. Angry because of situations. Angry because of the way things are going. Mad at God. Mad at their spouse. Mad at others. I can tell you that you may have some legitimacy in those, in those frustrations. I mean, it could be that there are legitimacies. But if you could have a face-to-face -face conversation with God about it, He would want to talk to you about you. Not about whoever's getting blamed. So, Cain was... The Bible says, very angry, and his face fell, or his countenance changed. So that he just got this kind of dark, gloomy look over his face, almost like a bitter, resentful, just, you know what, why try? Why even try then? And so the Lord said to Cain, <clears throat> now notice how the Lord reacts and responds to this. Because first of all, the thing that I notice about how God reacts is that he's wanting reconciliation he's wanting uh, he, he approaches him first with kindness and gentleness he, he doesn't just blast Cain right out of the way Cain is wrong Cain, Cain is moving towards sin but look at the heart of God he says why are you angry Cain and why has your face fallen if you do well will you not be accepted and if you do not do well then sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Again, such a huge revelation about how this world works. How many things have happened in our lives 
And we were on the other side of the door, just like Cain was. We were on the other side of the door. We hadn't entered through the door of sin, of rebellion. We hadn't entered in yet. We're on the other side, but we're thinking about it. Or we're in a frame of mind that's leading us towards that. And God intervenes and He says, I really want you to think about what you're doing right now. I really want you to think about the choice that you're about to make. Because I, he, and, and he gives Cain revelation to how this is going on. He's like, there's more going on here than just you making a bad choice or a good one. He said, no, actually sin is crouching and hiding on the other side of that door. And if you open it and you go through it, sin is going to rush into your life and the, the consequences are going to be devastating. And it will, by opening that door, it's going to unleash a whole series of consequences in your life that you're not going to like and that are going to be bad for you. Some of those consequences that will follow you for the rest of your life. Have any of you ever made choices in your life that you're still reaping the consequences of those things today? Of course you have. I mean, you made it, if you're married, you made a choice to get married you know, years ago and you're still reaping the con good or bad. You're reaping the consequences of that. If you brought children into this world, and some of you weren't even trying to bring children into this world. You, you made a choice. And children came into this world. And you're still living with that consequence. And even if they moved out of your house, you're dealing with... And then grandchildren. And so the, the ripple effect, the consequences just go on and on. And this is what God was trying to explain to Cain. He said, you need to really think about what you're doing. He said, your choice is very clear. If you just do well, if you just do right you're going to be accepted and everything's going to be fine. In other words, even though you brought me the offering you weren't supposed to, just go back and do it right, and he says, you'll be accepted. You still have a chance for that. If not, he said, I'm, I'm letting you know that sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is to destroy your life. And it can't do anything. This is why the Bible says that Satan roars around, uh, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Who may devour? Those that open that door. He can't devour everyone, and sin could not have affected Cain's life. It was so simple. All Cain would have had to do is to repent and say, God, you know what? You're right. I'm not opening that door. I'm going to go get the right offering. I repent to you. I repent to Abel. I'm getting my heart right. Man, his whole life would have been different. His kids' lives, every, every generation, everything would have been different after that. But even though God, God himself was speaking. This is why I don't get discouraged when I do counseling and nobody listens to me. This is why I don't get discouraged. Because God himself was talking to Cain. And he, said, he laid it out for him clear as day. He said, look, this is your option. This is what you need to do. And he still chose the wrong thing. Still did the wrong thing. Still went the wrong way. But I love this uh, question that God asked him. He says, why are you angry? And that would be so good to answer that question. If you're angry right now. If you're upset at someone, if you're upset because of things that are happening in your life, it would be so good for you to answer that question, why are you angry? Why am I angry? What am I mad about? And, and, and is it really justified? Do I have a right to be angry? Or should I actually be looking inward and figuring out how I need to repent and how I need to change? So we know what happened. Cain ended up murdering his brother. But it's true for us today, same thing. These choices are before us. I want to talk to you today about what is a choice, and it may seem, you know, 
kind of overly simplistic, thinking, okay, what is a choice? Well, obviously, we know what a choice is. Yeah, but there, it's actually a lot more complicated than you think about. Uh, and, and it's something that we take for granted, like breathing. Okay, you breathe in, you breathe, you breathe all day, and you think, oh, yeah, we know what breathing is. Yeah, but if you actually study the scientific things that are going on in your body and what's happening in your lungs and how it's distributing oxygen, all the scientific part, it's like, well, it's actually pretty complicated. And this is kind of like that. But let's just get into it. I don't want to just spend a huge amount of time on it, but, but, but I think it's important to actually talk about what a choice is because, as I said last week, it's you. In a lot of ways, it's very, very unique to human beings to have free will to choose like this. We're not creatures that just operate off of instinct. We have a free will to choose to not choose. And it's very, very highly developed. And actually, that ability to choose is part of being made in the image of God. We're God-like in that way, in that we can choose. And our choices carry massive consequences. So what is a choice? Well, first of all, by definition... In order for something to be a choice, there must be alternatives, or else it's not a choice. Okay? If there are no alternatives, then it's not a choice. So there must be option A, or option B, or option A, and infinite other choices. Even when people say, well, I had no choice, most of the time they actually did have a choice. I mean, 99% of the time when people say, well, I had no choice, I had to do that, that's not true. Actually, there was another choice. But what you're really saying is, it kind of left me with no choice because the other choices were just so bad that this was the only option that I could take. But in reality, you did have a choice. Even if somebody put a gun to your head, you have a choice. It's still a choice. It's still up to you. And it may not feel like a choice, but actually you do. You, have, you still have a choice. Even if someone's physically forcing you, you still have a choice to say, no, I'd rather die then do that. That is a choice. Not a good choice, by the way. I understand. Not a good choice, but you still have a choice. This is how powerful choice is. You always have many, many options that are in front of you, and what we need to figure out is why do we choose the options that we do? Because when you really start studying choice in a person's life, you will find that it is not haphazard. You will find that there, are a, there, there is a pattern to our choices. And so we need to understand why, first of all, what, what is the choice and what, why are we choosing the things that we do? Why are we making the choices that we make? So here's another way to look at it. A choice, every choice, is really a battle. It's a very small battle, or you could say a skirmish, just a little, little battle that's going on in your life. Now, sometimes with big choices, you know exactly what I mean. Man, it was a battle. It took me weeks, it took me months and talking and figuring and thinking to make this choice. There was a battle going on. But even in something as simple as, where are we going to eat tonight? There's a small battle that's going on in your mind and in your heart and in your life. Let me give you an example. There's, there's always things that are competing. This is what I mean by it being a battle. For example, there are competing desires. You may have had a desire this morning to sleep in. And you had another desire to get up. You may have had a desire to stay home and sit on the couch. You had another desire to go to church. And we can see which one won that battle. In your case, there's lots of other people watching online didn't win that battle. Man, they slept in there in their pajamas watching online. We still love you. Don't worry about it. Glad to have you. 
there's a little battle that was going on between desires. You didn't even think about it like that. But see, that's, that's the thing I'm trying to get you to see. There's a pattern to it. If you have a habit of going to church on Sunday morning, it's because you have a habit of not yielding to that other desire to sleep in, stay home, whatever that is. You have a habit of pushing through that desire and doing the right thing. You didn't think of it as a battle, maybe, you, because we just kind of go on autopilot, but there was a little battle that went on in desires. What about what else is competing when we make a choice? Information. Information is competing. So let's say I meet somebody new, and I say, I meet him, and I think, man, I like this guy. You know, seemed normal, got a good sense of humor, uh, seemed like he'd be a, a, a great fit at One Life, and you know, I, I, I like this guy, seemed like a good guy. And then somebody comes along and they whisper in the mirror, hey, you need to watch out for that guy. Just trust me, something weird about that guy. Okay, now what? I have competing information. I have information that I got with my own eyes. Now I've got gossip in this ear. I've got other information there that's now competing and it's affecting my choice of what to believe about this person. So not only do I have competing desires, I also have competing information in any, any situation. I mean, think about buying a car, all the research that you do. You got all the research about, oh, this is the best car, and why this is the best car. So you got all the information that's now competing and there's like a little battle that's going on and what's going to win out. Also in a choice, you have competing motives. This is different than desire. You have competing motives. All right, let's say, let's say for example that um, I have a motive. My, my motive is that I want to be really wealthy. Well, in choosing between jobs, if, even if I'm trying to be neutral and just make the best decision for my family, if this one pays more, and that's my real motive. And sometimes when I'm talking to people, I can, I can never bring that motive up because that motive doesn't look good. It doesn't make me look good. So when I'm discussing, I'll go, well, option A and this. And, B. and really, I'm slanted towards this one already. I've already kind of made my decision. This is what I want to do. And I'm actually not even being objective anymore. Why? Because I have an ulterior motive that no one knows about. And so that greatly affects choice. Sometimes people already know what they want to do and they've already made up their mind, but they know that's not a good habit and so they want to appear as being objective. And I'm considering all information and I'm weighing, but really they have a motive that's driving the whole thing. That can happen. Then we can have, I told y'all making a choice was complicated. You didn't even know that we were just you know, thinking through all these things. Of course, we all know this, but we don't think about it on a regular basis. You also have competing emotions. Sometimes... I've seen people make uh, choices that are almost 100% emotional, overriding all facts, all information, overriding everything else. I was just angry, and so I did it. And we know the power of emotion. This is another Craig Groeschel saying, which I, you know, I, I know it sounds like I just love Craig, Craig Groeschel, which he is an awesome pastor, but he has some really good statements. But he said this one, he said, when wisdom is, uh, he said, when emotions are high, wisdom is low. And I thought, oh, man, that is good. Why? Because when emotions are high, we can't 
exercise very good wisdom to make good choices because those emotions are so powerful that it can override every other, every other good decision-making faculty and we can make a bad decision. This is why anger is so powerful. Boy, you ever done anything in anger? You ever said anything in anger? You ever text anything in anger? You ever send an email in anger? I got to say, you know, I don't know. I probably inherited this one. I'm going to blame my dad. I know it's all about talking responsibility, but, you know, whatever. That's, that's. But, you know, growing up, we did a lot of working with our hands, you know, a lot of working out in the field and, then you know, nursery and things like that. And so, I don't know. I picked up this habit along the side. Like, I'm generally a very patient, calm, nice person. But when I go into work mode, there's something changes. I don't know what happens. And so now the, my fuse is just a little bit shorter, just a little bit shorter. And, boy, if you've ever made some mistakes while you were angry, like stuff that, <clears throat> you know, stuff that if you just slowed down and thought a little bit versus you got mad and, you, and so you're doing something and, like, you do, if you've, any of you men, you've ever done this, you're, you're doing that, you get in that high-paced mode doing stuff, you know you should have slowed down a little bit, and you just push it a little further than you wanted to, and then you bust a water line, and you're like, if I just slowed down, now I've got several hours ahead of me of fixing this stupid mistake from emotions, getting angry, doing. And this is in life. Emotions are competing, too. Okay? Emotions are always factoring in. Sometimes we're not making good decisions because we're not making good choices, even though we have good information. Maybe, our, maybe we want to do the right thing. The desires are good. But our emo, we can get emotional, and we can, and we can be driven by fear, Oh, fear is a powerful one that drives decisions. Being afraid. Jesus dealt with this constantly, ha having to deal with fear in people because they would make bad decisions out of fear. People will, will even destroy relationships out of fear because I had, I had a, a, a man in my past treat me this way, and so now out of fear I'm worried about you know, other men treating me this way or women or on and on. Or I had a boss who treated me like this. And so now I'm, it's, it's affecting the way I'm interacting with this. So that fear can affect our decisions. We, we already talked about anger. Anger can affect. When those emotions are high, sometimes it can override every other thing. And we can make really bad decisions. This is why it's, if you are feeling emotional, it's best to just wait and not make a decision if you can it is best to wait, get your head clear, okay? get some godly counsel, get some input, because when you are highly emotional, you make really bad decisions. This is why with relationships, people will generally counsel. Like if you're coming out of a relationship, don't just jump into another one because you're very emotional coming out and you'll make a really bad decision going in to another one. That can happen with a lot of things. So something even, but, you know, we know this on big decisions, but something even as simple as where do we eat dinner tonight or where do we go to lunch after church, all these factors are at play. Even though they're happening at lightning speed, right, they're happening at lightning speed, every one of these factors are in play. Desire, you know, you're like, oh, I, don't feel, I, I don't want Mexican today, you know, I kind of wanted, wanted a steak, all right, so you got desires going on. You got information, oh, somebody told me that such and such place is really good. And then your wife speaks up and says, no, I, somebody else told me that it was awful. I don't want to eat there. You've got competing information. You've got 
motives. Maybe you want to go to a certain restaurant, Dad, because it's half the price of the place that all your other family wants to go. You know, ah, you, you know you're trying to appear objective. You're like, no, let's, we're going to go to McDonald's today. You know, you got ulterior motives that you don't want to say nothing about. Emotions. You know, there could be a whole host of emotions going on that are affecting your choice. The point is, even in something as simple as choosing where to eat, all of this is going to come into play very quick. And the human brain has been designed to make these decisions at a lightning speed, lightning, lightning pace. So much so that what happens is a huge amount of our decisions, and this is, you know, you could study the science of this, but a huge amount of our decisions are actually on autopilot. When you get up in the morning, you probably do a very similar thing every day with that. You don't even feel like you're making a choice. You get up, you hit the coffee, you know, you pour the coffee, open the fridge, get it out, there you go, you work out, you stretch, you get, you know, you go to the bathroom, brush your teeth, you do. You're just going through and your brain is doing it all, but it's almost on autopilot. So if you get a bad decision in that autopilot system, like let, let's say... I don't know if anyone's doing this or would do this, but let's say you get in your autopilot system a habit of skipping brushing your teeth before you go to bed. I'll just use that for something simple. Well, if that becomes a part of your autopilot system, and now that you begin choosing that almost on autopilot, well, the effects of that are going to eventually catch up to you. And all of a sudden, there's going to be a huge harvest of consequences on that decision. Some of us, in our autopilot system, some of us have a habit of, for example, let's say not listening to counsel, not listening to advice. And you know, it's not a big deal. You know, someone tries to help you and you just tune it out. You're like, nah, I, I know better. Well, you don't realize that's a habit that is accumulating consequences in your life. You know, maybe you have a habit of responding sharply when somebody offends you. And you, you know, you have a sharp wit and you just, you just come back and you think, well, that's just who I am. No, you've built a habit of doing that. At one time it was a choice. Now it's become a habit and a pattern and it could be affecting relationships. It could be affecting your marriage. And you're almost not even thinking about it anymore because it's on, it's on autopilot. So choices are very, very powerful. But here's the point that I wanted you to see. Every choice is a battle. And this is the point. Something wins that battle and it's so important for you to figure out what it is that is winning in those situations and if you look deeply what you will find is that there's a pattern to what is winning maybe emotions win out a lot with you maybe you're very 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 logical and it's always just information maybe it's desire maybe it's motive but something is winning in your decision-making process, and whatever it is, is controlling your life. Whatever you are experiencing in life today, okay, whatever the fruit is in your life, is a result of whatever is winning in your decision-making battles. If you have a habit of yielding to your flesh, that is winning in your life, and you're seeing the fruit of that. So the point I really want you to get is something is winning, okay? There are these little battles that are going on, and for each of us, we need to figure out what's winning. What is it that consistently wins when I make decisions? Now, 
I want to break down the desire and the motive portion just a little bit further because the Bible does a really good job of explaining this uh, when it talks about the spirit and the flesh. So let's look in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Galatians 5, 16. Paul said this, But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Let's say this another way. Walk according to your spirit. See, as a born-again believer, your spirit, man, has been born again. The Bible says new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Your spirit is born again. It is eternal. It loves God. It has the desires that God has. But there's another part of you that he calls the flesh nature. In other words, you still have a flesh and a sin nature. And so he says, I say walk by the Spirit, or walk according to the Spirit, or, trying to simplify it to people, learn to yield to your Spirit. When, for example, you woke up this morning, your Spirit wanted to go to church. Your Spirit's like God. Your Spirit desired to be in communion and worship and hear the Word. Your Spirit wanted that, but your flesh, nothing, and nothing wrong with this, your flesh did not. Your flesh is lazy. Your flesh is selfish. Your flesh wanted to sit on the couch and eat potato chips. Your flesh doesn't want to hear anything wrong with itself. Your flesh doesn't want to hear the Word of God, doesn't want to be corrected, doesn't want to give, doesn't want to love, doesn't want to you know, make small talk with people. Your flesh is your flesh. And if you don't understand this, listen, as a new Christian, this is the most important thing you can understand. You have a spirit and you have a flesh. And you are going to have desires that are according to the flesh, and you are going to have desires that are according to the Spirit. And Paul is making it so simple. He said, look, it's so simple. Walk according to the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's kind of like a no-duh situation, like turning on the light switch. Turn on the light, and you'll have light. Turn it off, and you'll have dark. It's a lot like that. Walk according to the Spirit. And you'll, you'll, you'll fulfill the desires of the Spirit. Walk according to the flesh. You'll fulfill the desires of the flesh. But I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time explaining those differences. Because if you've been here for a while, I've explained it many, many times. It comes up a lot because it's such a key factor. But every desire you have is not from God. Every, every desire, maybe a strong desire. Well, I really want to do this. And, I, and I have, I'll have people tell me, I think God's telling me to do this. And they're saying it because they have a really strong desire. Listen, every desire is not from God. Re even really, really strong desires cannot be from God. Okay, that's, there's a lot of sin in this world that's come because people just given in to their desires. Okay? And the world, of course, is very confused on this. They're like, well, I, I just feel this way. I just have this desire for, you know, opposite sex. Or I have this desire to do this. And, and you go, yeah, you have that desire because we all have a sin nature. Nothing wrong with having the, the desire. The question is, do you know how to put it under? And do you know how to yield to the Spirit instead of yielding to the flesh? So Paul said, I say walk by the Spirit. You could say it this way, and you will not... Make choices that gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desire of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. You see, I told you there was a battle going on. These two are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. This, is so, this can be so confusing. Because he says... 
There's a battle going on that's trying to stop you from doing what you want to do. And sometimes people don't understand this because they go, well, I wanted to stay home today. I wanted to stay in bed. No, actually what Paul would say is that's not you. The real you is your spirit. And there was a part of you that wanted to come to church. There was a part of you that wanted to stay home. That was your spirit that wanted to come. It was your flesh that wanted to stay home. And he said, there's a fight, there's a battle that's going on, and the purpose of it is to prevent you from doing what the real you wants to do, the spirit part of you wants to do. So what he's explaining here is if you're going to be a person that has godly fruit in their life, you're going to have to get this right. You're going to have to realize and live every single day and evaluate every single decision according to this. You're going to have to become really good at learning what the flesh wants to do and what the spirit wants to do. And I could give you a thousand, we could give you a, a thousand examples. You're probably already thinking of, of many. But you've got to become really good at identifying what my flesh wants to do. Let, let's say this, for example. And sometimes what your flesh wants to do is not always wrong. For example, when we started pastoring this church, we had decisions to make about where we were going to plant, uh, plant, our, plant the church. It wasn't a given that we were coming to Alexandria. There were other places we could have gone and other places that we considered. But Alexandria was part of the equation. Now, to be honest with you, my, the, my flesh, the fleshly, the fleshly part of me, wanted to come to Alexandria because it was comfortable. Right? I, I, my family's here. I've got a lot of family here. This is where I grew up. I knew this area really well. So in making the decision, what did I have to do? I had to put the flesh under and make sure that I wasn't just making the decision to come to Alexandria because it was what my flesh wanted to do. That can, that can sabotage and derail your choices. So I had to put that under, make sure that was under, and be objective and go, God, what, where do you want us to go? What do you want us to do? I'll go anywhere for you. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Now, it just happened that this was where God wanted me to be. But you can see very easily where you could have made the decision just because of the flesh. And this is where it gets confusing when people are making decisions. Because their flesh has a voice and their spirit has a voice. And you've got to learn to hear the voice of the spirit. And you've got to learn to discern the, the two. Anytime you're making a good decision, anytime you're trying to make a decision, it'd be really good to first identify what your flesh wants to do in the moment. This is what my flesh would want to do in this moment. This is what my flesh wants to do. Because once you know that, it's going gonna, it's gonna to help you discern, am I just doing this because it's my... It doesn't always mean that it's wrong because it's what your flesh wants to do. But remember, your flesh will always, if it had its way, it will always choose the easy path. Whatever's easiest. Whatever requires the least amount of work. Whatever serves me. Whatever makes me happy. It's, it's going to gravitate towards that easiest path. And so many times, 90% of the time, God's path is going to be the harder path. It's going to be the more difficult path. It's going to require sacrifice on your part. So it's a really good habit to get into to recognize what does my flesh want to do in this moment. And that will help you make better Decisions. So this can get clouded really fast, um, and it can distort decision-making ability when you don't understand this. And this is actually where deception comes in. Why? Because the flesh is a master 
at deceiving. And I've watched this process. We've all seen this process, but I've watched this process happen in people's lives where they are just straight up talking themselves into the worst decision possible. How can you not see what everybody else sees? But you are talking yourself into this day by day, moment by moment. You're, you're literally talking yourself into the worst decision possible. Contrary to God's Word, contrary to what your spirit, contrary to what godly counsel is telling you, you're talking yourself into it. What's going on? Your flesh is a master deceiver. And your flesh will learn your, your sin nature, that sin part of you will, well, it's okay if you do this. Here's why that, that's different for you. Here's why this is okay. And they will talk themselves into the worst decision possible, even though everyone on the outside is going, what was this person thinking? How could they have thought that was a good idea? Because their flesh just talked them right into it. We are all susceptible to this. So remember, your flesh already has a direction that it wants to go, but you have to learn to yield to your spirit. The fourth thing that I want to tell you about choices is that every choice sets in motion a sequence of consequences. And when you make a choice, you are also choosing a whole host of other consequences that you may or may not be aware of. Very few choices are just isolated by themselves, even really small choices. So if I take a sip of this water bottle, which I wanted to do anyway, so that was just kind of a good little segue there. It seems like such a simple decision. But... There are ripple effects from that decision really all the way into the afternoon from the way your body processes water to the way it gets rid of water in your body through sweat and other ways. There's a whole sequence of consequences to every choice that we make. Again, some of them are super small, super tiny, and short-lived. But some of them ripple on forever, as we talked about, for example, with making a, a, cho a choice to conceive a child and bring a child into this world, those effects ripple on for the rest of our lives. So every choice sets in motion a sequence of consequences, many of which you're probably not aware of, many, many of which you're not thinking about when you make the choice, right? So you, again, you, you, just, you just choose something simple and you think, well, it's not a big deal, we're going to do this, or, you know, you, you're on the you're on the internet and you choose to look at something and think, oh, it's not a big deal. Well, just remember, there are ripple effects of, those, of that choice and there are consequences that will just continue on. You're not just choosing the thing in the moment. You're also choosing all the consequences that follow it and that ripple afterwards. And you go, well, this just, that's too heavy. Nobody can think about that. That's just such a huge responsibility. Yes, because you were made in the image of God. And this is one of the characteristics of being God-like is the ability to choose. This works in a good way too. You, we, we, we tend to focus on the negative, but this works in a good way too. Okay, If you choose to send your wife a sweet text message, that's going to have ripple effects. Maybe throughout the day, maybe throughout the week, it goes on. It's, so this works in a good way 
as well. But just remember, you may not always know what they are, but every choice you make, it sets in motion a sequence of consequences. Sometimes the people who are on the outside are being affected by your choices as well, by the ripple effect of your choices. I've experienced this many times. If you're part of a family, if you're part of a church, if you have kids, sometimes other people are making choices that affect you ongoingly, and they don't even know. And sometimes you want to let them know. You're like, hey, your choices are affecting me. And it's going on and on and on. Every time you do this, it's affecting me. But the person doing it doesn't always think of that. They're not always aware of the, the scope of the consequences of their decisions. See, this is why God presented it the way He did in Deuteronomy 30. He said, I set before you this day good and blessing, curse, death and cursing, choose life. I set before you life and death, choose life. Now, see, he's talking about the end result of a choice. He, he's getting all the way to the end of what we're talking about. When you choose something good like coming to church, you don't think, man, I'm choosing life today. Or if you choose something bad and you go, well, I'm just quitting going to church. I'm not going to church anymore. You don't think I'm choosing death. Or if you choose, you know, to, to, to walk out of your house in an argument, you go, I'm not talking to my wife, I'm leaving, you know, and, I, and you get mad and leave. You don't think I'm choosing death. But see, when, when God lays it out in Deuteronomy 30, He's showing you the end result of your choices. He's showing you that every choice has a sequence of consequences that eventually produce a harvest. So when you make a small choice, you may not be thinking, I'm choosing death, but actually it would be better for us to think like that. It would be better for us to think in terms of, is this a life, a life choice or is this a death choice that I'm making right now? Here's another way to help you with your choices. Ask yourself this. What would happen if I amplified the amount or frequency of this choice? Because sometimes we think, oh, this ain't going to hurt me, you know, just this one little time. Ah, you're letting deception come in. Your, your flesh is deceiving you. Satan's deceiving you. Because it rarely works like that. So you go, oh, I'm going to do this. It's not really going to hurt. I'll just do this a little bit here. Or I know this ain't right how I should be acting, but I'm going to do it and I'll get it right. Okay. That you're letting, deception, you're, you're letting deception come in. But sometimes it would help us to figure out, okay, well, what if I magnified and expanded the amount of time that I'm doing this and the frequency and the longevity? What would happen if I, so maybe I'm doing this thing, I'm choosing, I know it's not really good for me, but I'm choosing this and I'm doing this every so often. But what would happen all of a sudden if I started doing this every day? And that works in a good way too. You go, well, you know, I read my Bible once a week. Okay, what would happen if you started doing that every day? What type of fruit would that produce in your life? So this is what God was trying to get us to understand in Deuteronomy 30, is that choices, when you make a choice, you're not just choosing the, the choice in the moment. You're choosing all the consequences that follow, some of which are way, 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 way down the road. You know, if you choose to eat a salad for lunch today that's such a simple choice it's not going to have a big it's not going to have a big effect but those choices have effect down the road there are ripple effects to it and that's <clears throat> why our choices are so important okay uh, last point that I want to give you about choices the real power of choices 
as in their stacking nature, meaning their ability <clears throat> to accumulate results over a long period of time, both good and bad. Now, we tend to think about choices that have drastic consequences, right? You, you, you make a choice, uh, you know, in your marriage to be unfaithful or something, and then it just has this massive consequence. Or, you know, you do something stupid at work and you get fired. You know, it's like one, you made one decision and there's just massive consequences. But actually, most choices aren't that way. Most choices don't, some of the most powerful choices that we make they don't have immediate consequences. They're, they're more stacking in nature. So, simple example, if you take a vitamin every day. Well, if you take a vitamin every day, and you get those nutrients in your body, okay, whether you do or don't one day isn't going to have much effect. The, the power is in the stacking nature of it, of it doing daily over a long period of time. Or if you work out. If you skip a workout, or if you don't go, or if you miss a week, or you miss a two, it's not really the thing. It's the stacking power over, over a long period of time that produces results, or, not, or, or choosing not to do it. And so then, the same way to get out of those situations usually requires stacking choices as well. So if you've made, if you've made uh, stacking choices to, say, uh, you know, not take care of your body, and you end up, you know, after 20 years, you end up in a certain way, you can't just get out of it overnight. You can't, it, it, it took hundreds of choices, thousands of choices to get here, and you can't just get out, over it, out of it with one choice. You, and this is where people struggle. I, as a pastor, I encounter, people, I encounter this mindset all the time. It's like, well, I started doing right. I started coming to church. I started reading my Bible. Yeah, for a week, for two weeks. Hey, for six months. If you've spent 20 years of your life living a certain way, and then you just now started going God's way in the last six months. How many of you know that takes time to accumulate? And there's going to be an undoing. There's going to be an undoing of all the past choices and harvests. It, that takes time. That takes time. So the power of choices is in their stacking nature. And, in, and sometimes you can stack yourself into a corner and into a situation. And absolutely you can start making good choices from there. But it doesn't always turn around overnight. That's why choices are so important. That's why choices are so important. If you choose a certain way for years and decades, and now you're seeing the result of it in your marriage or in your health or in your life, that's why choices are so powerful. They don't just go away. The consequences don't just go away whenever you start making good choices. Now, that, of course, doesn't uh, account for God's mercy. God's grace coming in and thank God not giving us what we deserve, wiping out harvests and you know helping us with all that. Yes, that can happen, but let me tell you, it doesn't happen with everybody and it doesn't happen with everything. I've seen people that although they repented and got everything right in their life and started making good choices, they still had to live with the consequences, the natural consequences of those choices for decades. Even though they were totally forgiven before God, God's on their side, all of that yeah, choices are powerful, and they will have lasting consequences. Most, most choices, the power of it is in their stacking nature. Okay, let's take, let's take a marriage 
that ends in divorce? Well, divorce is simply the end result of a series of stacking choices. It, it usually is not from one choice at all, not, not at all. Even if it was one big moment, there were many, many, many choices that led up to that moment. So divorce, or what God would call death, you know, the, the death, the, when he says death, he's talking about the harvest. So divorce is simply the end result of a series of stacking choices. Oh, you, you see, you were just choosing to work late regularly all the time and not be home and you didn't realize it was leading to this you were choosing to be alone with people you shouldn't have been alone with you thought well there ain't nothing to it oh this isn't a big deal yeah but you didn't know it was leading to this and that by choosing that regularly and, and not operating in wisdom regularly those choices were stacking like brick by brick and then eventually you get to the harvest you get to the end result the same is true if your marriage makes it. We have many good marriages in this room. Praise God for that. That doesn't happen by accident. If you have a good marriage that's lasted a decade, two decades, more, three, four decades, that's the end result of a long series of stacking choices. You've made choices along the way that led to your marriage being intact and, and still being together. And if your kids make it. If you end up financially well off, if you end up in good health or bad, it will be because you made these stacking choices that we're talking about over a long period of time. Amen. Well, we have a lot more to get to. I'm, I'm not really at the end here because what the Bible calls this is uh, the law of sowing and reaping. So it's a spiritual principle. We're, you know, everything that we've said up to this point, it doesn't even matter if you're a Christian, you understand what, I, what I'm talking about. But then there's a spiritual principle to it as well called the law of sowing and reaping. But we're not going to get into it this morning because we're out of time. But next week, we're going to pick up here. Because you can put this to work from you. No matter where you're at, how far along you are, how deep in you think you are, you can put the law of sowing and reaping to work for you and start making choices that will change your future.